You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for April 2019. Today's episode is titled, The Gospel and Excellent Work. Management can observe the gospel of each worker because it is manifested in what and how the worker delivers work product. When a person is full of shame and performance, is not transparent, or refuses to take responsibility, such a person has embraced the gospel of cooperation and will never be an effective worker. To remedy this situation, the worker needs to embrace the gospel of the grace of Christ, the singular gospel. Wise managers recognize the traits of the gospel of cooperation in workers and will seek wisdom to introduce the true gospel of the grace of Christ to these workers. Those who embrace the true gospel will be empowered to produce excellent work and those who hold to the gospel of cooperation will never consistently produce excellent work. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Gospel Counts at Work. Well, this morning we're talking about uh, a singular gospel of justification out of Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. The first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2 focused on Paul's visit to Jerusalem to submit to the authority of the original apostles to confirm his singular gospel of the grace of Christ. The gospel of the grace of Christ is good news regarding the deliverance from bondage to sin that comes uniquely and solely through Christ. Paul wrote of this in Galatians 1.4 when he said that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father. The singular gospel is good news about salvation from sin and death based on the grace of Christ alone. The propensity of fallen mankind, however, is to imitate Adam and Eve and default to the pattern of fig leaves. The gospel of the first century, Judaizers, was a gospel based on the pattern of fig leaves. This issue became a major point of contention for Paul, who traveled to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus to address this matter. This was covered in the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. At some point, the first church council addressed the question. Peter testified that the Gentiles were saved through the grace of Christ just as the Jews were in Acts 15 verse 11. Barnabas and Paul concurred. Then James offered a compromise. It's recorded in Acts chapter 15 verses 19 through 20. James said this, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Though the statement was not a pure Pauline gospel, it certainly was better than the Judaizers gospel. The council did not burden the Gentile converts with the obligation of circumcision and our full obedience to the Mosaic law, but stipulated that they abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what had been strangled, and from blood. Now, these stipulations were consistent with the Mosaic Law, and if followed, helped the Gentile Christians be more acceptable with the Jewish Christians. Paul's response to the council's conclusion was positive, which suggested that it was close enough to the singular gospel that he could live with it. Whether Paul's visit to Jerusalem, recorded in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1-10, through 10, was before or after or congruent with the first church council is not clear. Likewise, the timing of Paul's visit to, uh, Peter's visit to Antioch recorded in the second half of Galatians chapter 2 is unclear. 
Some even suggest that Peter's visit to Antioch preceded Paul's visit to Jerusalem. In any case, the purpose of Galatians chapter 2 was to record Paul's struggle to maintain the purity of the singular gospel of the grace of Christ as the essential foundation of Christianity. Also in the last portion of chapter 2, Paul introduced the doctrine of justification and contrasted this doctrine as it emanates from the singular gospel versus the Judaizers' gospel of fig leaves. Included in this section is the well-known and frequently memorized verse, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This text is a summary of the first two tenses of salvation ensconced in the singular gospel of the grace of Christ. The singular gospel is rooted in the love of God and expressed in the sacrifice of Christ. Now let me read the text, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21 from the English Standard Version. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I, I as Paul here, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, and when they came, he withdrew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how could you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth. The we here is Peter and Paul. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. That's important to note what he says there. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This text is a powerful text. It really addresses the reality of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone and sets it into the context of exactly what is your gospel. Peter went to Antioch and enjoyed fellowship with the ethnic groups, that is the Gentiles. This action is tantamount to implied acceptance of them. But when some Judaizers 
Judaizers are those who believe you have to become a Jew or be circumcised before you become a Christian. So they had a gospel different from Paul's. It was a gospel of grace plus something. But when some Judaizers arrived who did not fully embrace the singular gospel, Peter responded in fear. Now this is the same Peter who had fully agreed with Paul's singular gospel. But now he responds in fear. This fear was perhaps because the representatives of James were dignitaries from the mother church in Jerusalem. Peter's response demonstrated a level of confusion about the gospel. Though in theory, there seemed to be agreement with the singular Pauline gospel, in practice it was difficult to resist the temptation to try to syncretize Christianity with Judaism. Peter responded in two ways. He withdrew and he separated from the Gentile Christians. Not only did Peter break fellowship with the Gentile Christians, but he also set up barriers to maintain the segregation. Furthermore, Peter's action was imitated by other Jewish believers who were with him, including even Barnabas, Paul's closest ally. Paul's reaction to Peter demonstrated that he was not fully committed, <clears throat> he was that he was fully committed to the singular gospel of the grace of Christ. Paul was not swayed by the Judaizers nor was he swayed by Peter's reaction to them. Instead, he strongly challenged Peter. The imagery of Paul confronting Peter face to face was a powerful picture of Paul's conviction about the veracity of the singular gospel. Now, the singular gospel is the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone. And it's singular because there is no other gospel. It's the gospel that Paul outlined in great detail in Galatians chapter 1. In challenging Peter, Paul used the, first, the Greek first class condition to oppose Peter's lack of integrity. The Greek first class condition assumes that the premise, which is called the protasis, is true. The protasis was, if you, that is you, Peter, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles, and not as the Jews. In other words, Peter was living in fellowship with the Gentiles, as if he was one of them. He was fully accepting of them. He was not living like a Jew who generally would live segregated from them. This means that Peter's association with the Gentile Christians was tantamount to accepting them based on the singular gospel, which was correct. That was a correct way to relate to them. But now the conclusion of the apodosis was given in the form of a question. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Peter's former actions were cons inconsistent with his latter actions. How could he turn against the Gentile Christians just because they had not become Jews? And he did this only once the Judaizers showed up. Now Peter personally knew that the Gentiles had been brought into the fellowship of believers. He had witnessed this firsthand because he had been sent to Cornelius' house, had been the tool God used to bring the gospel to Cornelius' house, and had witnessed how the Holy Spirit fell upon them there. He knew, without a doubt, he knew that God saved the Gentiles by grace through faith in Christ alone. He had also confessed to that at the church council, and he had confessed to that at, with, with Paul personally, and now in Antioch, where he's challenged with the Judaizers showing up, he's not standing true to what he knows to be true. He's denying the truth, just like he did when he denied Christ three times 
at Christ's trial. How could he deny the Gentiles the place in the body of Christ? Peter's ch changed attitude toward the Gentile Christians was inconsistent with the singular gospel, and Paul called him out. Paul's response to Peter was based on the presumed virtue of integrity, living consistent with your profession. It was unacceptable to bifurcate words and actions. They must be congruent. But the bigger issue is not the form of Paul's rebuke to Peter, but the veracity and clarity of the gospel. Is salvation by grace alone or by grace plus some human works? Paul was clear, but Peter was conflicted. Going on to verses 15 and 16. These verses say, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now the we here is Peter and Paul. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, as we have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul identified with Peter as part of God's chosen people and argued based on their common experience as Jews. The Old Testament Jews failed to attain a righteous standing with God by keeping the law, which demonstrated they lacked the human potency to satisfy the righteous requirements of God. But God is merciful and therefore provided a way for mankind to attain righteousness with God apart from the works of the law. This is explained in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26 with great eloquence. Both Peter and Paul knew this reality, both from Scripture and their own experience. Peter was used of God to reveal God's purpose, including the Gentiles in his plan of salvation. Peter was sent to the house of Cornelius and witnessed the grace of God come upon the Gentiles. See Acts 10. Though Peter was used to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul became known to the apostle to be, the, be known as the apostles to the Gentiles. See verse two, chapter two, verse eight. Furthermore, both Peter and Paul knew the Old Testament scripture well and were undoubtedly aware of text that intimated that the singular gospel was indeed a gospel of faith. Notice a few texts here, Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. Job 25, 4. How then can man be right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Implying that the depravity of man is so profound, there's no way that mankind can make himself righteous with God with his own efforts. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Again, stressing the, the depth of depravity and impotency of man. And Psalm 143, verse 2, no one living is righteous before you, stressing there is no way that we can ever be good enough to earn a righteous standing with God. In addition to pointing out Peter's lack of integrity, Paul appealed to Peter as a fellow Jew, based on their own common experiences and scripture, to confirm the singular gospel. Verses 17 and 19. But if we, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. But there's an objection to the singular gospel that Paul must address. If we're saved by the grace of Christ and we continue to sin, is Christ a servant of sin? Paul uses this objection to explain the first two tenses of salvation. Paul's argument continues with a first-class condition to show the logical fallacy of a gospel based on grace plus human works, which could be called a gospel of cooperation. To make his case, Paul assumed that the gospel of cooperation was true, and by implication he assumed that humans today are no better than the Old Testament Jews at complying with the law. Then it follows that like the Old Testament Jews, humans today will fail to completely obey the law. You see, complete obedience to the law is the standard, according to James chapter 2, verse 10. Consequently, a gospel of cooperation cannot succeed. It's impossible, not because of Christ, but because of human, human impotency. Humans don't have the power to do this. The fallen condition of mankind is so deep that mankind can never, never obey the gospel completely. Any gospel that includes human cooperation as an essential ingredient for entrance, I stress entrance, into the benefits of the gospel is flawed because of human impotency. Fallen humans cannot fully obey the law, and Christ cannot change that reality. The reality that the grace of Christ cannot empower fallen mankind to obey the gospel, <clears throat> that is the gospel of cooperation, is an intriguing truth, illustrating even God operates within boundaries. It seems natural to assume that God being God can do anything, but this is not true. For example, God is truth, therefore he cannot lie. God is omniscient, therefore he cannot learn anything. God is eternal, therefore he cannot have a beginning or an end. God is the ultimate uncaused cause of all, therefore he cannot have be an effect. Given the reality of boundaries and the truth that God has boundaries, one of these boundaries is that that fallen mankind, that the fall of mankind was so complete that even God cannot empower man to overcome his or her sin in this sense, man is totally depraved, and God cannot change this reality. Therefore, a gospel of cooperation can never be efficacious because it depends on human potency to enable mankind to obey the law. But God had a solution, a gospel that did not depend on human cooperation, a gospel that depended solely on Christ. This is the singular gospel of the grace of Christ. And so now he expresses this gospel more completely and unpacks some of the details of this gospel in Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In this text, Paul brings grace and works together and explains how they connect in the singular gospel. Human works don't save a person, but human works reveal whether or not a person is saved. 
This is a critical distinction of the singular gospel. If you can't make this distinction, you will most likely default to the gospel of cooperation, which is the paradigm of the fig leaves, which is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Arguably, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is one of the most commonly quoted verses of Scripture, both because of its eloquence and profundity. In a few words, this text synthesizes the Christian message of salvation. Paul integrated both the past tense of salvation, regeneration, and the present tense of salvation, sanctification, stressing the role of grace in both the divine mechanism of <clears throat> both in the divine mechanism of double imputation. Double imputation is the means of conveying the divine power of regeneration and sanctification. Furthermore, Paul revealed the motive for this incredible gift of salvation, the love of God. Double imputation means that the sin of every regenerated person was imputed to Christ at the death of the cross. The imagery of death was used to explain that regeneration positionally removes our sin and guilt before God. And I stress positionally, because in practice, sanctification, we have to work that out. That's the second part. God's justice was therefore satisfied by Christ who bore the penalty of our sin. That was the first imputation. Our sin was imputed to Christ. He died on our behalf. The second imputation is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to enable us to grow and mature in Christ. This is sanctification. The power that enabled Christ to live a sinless life is at work in us to progressively transform us. The grammar elucidates the concept of double imputation. The verb translated crucified in the Greek text is in the perfect tense, passive voice, indicative mood. The perfect tense means past action with continuing consequences, good consequences. The passive voice means that the action of the verb was performed on the subject. In other words, we didn't crucify ourselves, but God crucified us. That was part of his saving grace. This intimates that people, a person, contributed nothing. We contributed nothing to the work of imputation. It is a gift of grace. The indicative mood means that the statement is factual. Justification is a sovereign act of God that provides continuing benefits. It's a fact. It's a reality. It's not an illusion. It's not just imagery. It's not a dream. It's a reality that happens in people as God sovereignly administers his grace. In other words, double imputation means that a person's sin is imputed to Christ to satisfy the righteous demands of God and that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the person to empower them to live a life of obedience to God. Peter synthesized the same truth from Isaiah 53 in the following words from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So we have death to sin is the first imputation, and living to righteousness is the second imputation. By his words, by his wounds, we have been healed. Paul also refers to this double imputation in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only <clears throat> as in my presence, but also more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So there's a synergism here at work. There is God at work, and there's our responsibility then to participate and be part of that work. So this is a synergism that's involved in sanctification. This is the present tense of salvation. Regeneration is the past tense of salvation. It's the entrance into the process of salvation. It is a sovereign act of grace alone. Sanctification, however, is the present tense aspect and is learning how to live under the Lordship of Christ, and it does involve responsible action on our part to respond to the grace of God, to respond to the redeeming power of the Holy Spirit, to progressively be transformed into alignment with the will and ways of God. A powerful vision, a powerful text for how works and grace are connected together. Now let me just give you a theolo one theological point here. Um, <coughs> the point of, of integrity here. Modernism or naturalism arose about se several, oh, several hundred years ago based on the presupposition that a reality can be explained by natural cause and effect. The hubristic view claimed no need for a God hypothesis. Soon the worldview was criticized because of its inability to provide an acceptable teleology. That is, when you are trying to ever explain everything without God, you, you are, are at odds to come up with how do we def define any purpose, any reason for existence. As a result, postmodernism arose as a reaction to modernism. And that the reaction was not terribly, uh, I mean, you could argue that it, there was a basis for that reaction. However, it very quickly became very distorted. Uh, if you go back and look at the early postmodernist like Schleiermacher, uh, he was a strong believer. But very soon, postmodernism morphed into a very liberal, atheistic paradigm. Among many traits, postmodernism labors under the presupposition that it does not have to be internally cons consistent. Therefore, when a tenet of postmodernity, such as all truth is relative, is challenged with the assertion that an absolute, that is, to make a statement that all truth is relative is an absolute statement. When, <clears throat> when you make that assert, uh, you basically assert that everything is relative using an absolute statement. There's an inconsistency there. To most, this is a very disingenuous argument. But to those who are postmodern, they don't require internal in 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 consistency or integrity. They have no problem with this. So this is one of the problems with postmodernity. As you can see in Galatians 2, Paul was not a postmodernist. He presumed that people live with integrity. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter called Peter to task. Paul called Peter to task when Peter displayed a lack of integrity. Peter fellowshiped with the Gentile Christians at Antioch until some Jewish believers arrived. Then he withdrew. The basis for his fellowship with the Gentiles was clearly his belief in the singular Pauline gospel. But there were Jewish Christians who came to Antioch with the gospel of cooperation. When they arrived, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles. Apparently, he feared conflict with the Jewish brothers whose gospel combined the grace of Christ with the Jewish law and required that the Gentile Christians be circumcised. Though Peter claimed to disagree with them, still he deferred to them. Paul viewed Peter's response as a total lack of integrity. Christians are called to live with integrity. And just note James's words from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James was very clear. Integrity is important. It's an important Christian virtue. What you really believe will be revealed in your actions. One can make a claim to believe something, but the validation is always one's actions. Are the words and the works congruent? When the words and works are not congruent, this is a lack of integrity. Likewise, when the words and works are congruent, there is integrity. Now let me give you a quick application here. Everyone believes in a gospel, some expression of what he or she considers to be good news. Whatever a person's definition of the gospel is will be manifested in their personal choices, their family, their participation in a local church, their involvement in the local community, and their deportment in the workplace. Anecdotally, my experience has been that for many, if not most workers in the workplace, their gospel is the gospel of cooperation, the grace of Christ plus some human works. This gospel is essentially dependent upon a person's own efforts to satisfy the righteous requirements of God. It was the gospel of Adam and Eve manifested when they first sinned. The sign of their gospel was seen in an attempt to be acceptable with God based on their own works of making coverings of fig leaves. It was the first version of the doctrine of cooperation. Another version was the Mosaic Law, which required perfect obedience to be acceptable with God. When Adam and Eve were confronted by God, they instinctively knew their gospel was not efficacious. So they hid. The Old Testament Israelites failed at their attempt to, at the gospel of cooperation. They rejected God and chose idolatry. Therefore, their gospel was not efficacious. Both Adam and Eve and the Old Testament Israelites attempted to live under a gospel of cooperation, but failed due to their impotency. This illustrates that the gospel of cooperation in any form can never be efficacious because it depends on human efforts. Therefore, the only true gospel is the gospel of Christ alone, the grace of Christ alone. Given the proclivity, however, of mankind to embrace the gospel of cooperation, how is this manifested in the workplace today? In the record of the fall of mankind given in Genesis 3, the gospel of cooperation was manifested by three human traits. These traits commonly manifest in workers today as well and do not contribute to effective, efficient workplaces. The first trait is shame and performance. When a person is driven by shame, they perform seeking acceptance and approval. Their identity will be defined by their performance. If a person's identity is defined by what he or she does, the person will have, a, have difficulty acknowledging mistakes and resolving conflict. Resolving conflict requires humility to be able to take responsibility and ask for forgiveness if needed. This is difficult when a person's identity is defined by his or her performance because admitting that one's performance is flawed is tantamount to admitting that one is flawed. The second trait is hiding from God. Deep down we humans know, just like Adam and Eve knew, 
that our efforts to become acceptable with God based on our own works will fail. Nevertheless, we continue to try until events occur and the inadequacy of our works is glaring. Then we will do what Adam and Eve did. We hide. Hiding is an attempt to be non-transparent, as if God doesn't or can't see the truth. One of the traits of workers living in the gospel of cooperation will be a lack of transparency, even sometimes a secret life. There will always be a mystery surrounding them in their explanations of life and events. Many times the explanation of situations will be confused, and their perspectives will not be credible. The third trait is blaming others and God for failures. Another way to view this trait is failure to take responsibility. When Adam was called to account by God for his sin, he blamed Eve and eventually blamed God who created Eve. Those living in the gospel of cooperation have a propensity to blame others for their failures instead of taking responsibility. This practice blocks efforts to build trust and effective organizational teams. One's gospel is very important. It reflects one's relationship with Christ and is manifest in how one lives and how one works. So when you see a person who's full of shame, performance, non-transparency, and refuses to take responsibility, most likely you're seeing a person who embraces the gospel of cooperation. This person will never be an effective worker. And the solution, the only real solution here, is to embrace the gospel of the grace of Christ, the singular gospel. This is the only way for them to become a truly outstanding worker. So may the Lord give us grace to learn to walk in the singular gospel.